Welcome, everybody, to Beyond Red and Blue, a podcast where we attempt to critically engage with ideas, regardless of political affiliation or social group, using good faith dialectic supported by logic and reason. We want to depolarize the conversation. Polarization is rampant, and we want to address these issues head on, free of fear, with a goal of unity. I'm one of your hosts, Bo Richards, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Dan Humphrey. Hey, hey. Let's get started. So today we're going to talk about uh, a subject that's uh, uh, very dear to my heart. It's a uh, personal responsibility. It's something that, um, for me, personally took me 30 years to figure out. I spent a very long time running aimlessly through my adolescent and my teens and my college years, and then my late 20s, not really understanding what it is that, um, what I was doing, what I thought, how I felt, and then, um, so you know, you're a pretty typical person then. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. A hundred percent. Yeah. <laughs> I think um, that's a common experience. Yeah. No, I think it is very common. And, uh, um, but once you, you kind of, I hate to use the matrix as an example, but once you take like the red pill, right. And then you mm -hmm. become unplugged as it were, you sort of start to realize like how blind you were that, that, does that makes sense. Absolutely. And, um, that happened to me at 30. So two years ago, and, um, that was horrifying and exciting and, um, very saddening to me to think that I could have done this, you know, at 16, at 14, um, looking back and, uh, um, but yeah, so how I thought we'd start is maybe let's kind of define personal responsibility, um, amongst ourselves so mm -hmm. we can, we're each going to have different things that it means to us and then just sort of take the conversation away, uh, the, the conversation kind of go from there. Um, do you want to hit it off first or would you like me to? Go ahead. Okay. Um, so a couple of things for me with personal responsibility, uh, the biggest thing I think for me is um, suspending the ego and trying to do what I can to master the little things, whatever those things may be. Um, I'm a big fan of Jordan Peterson, um, and he's, he's actually how I came to understand all of this. It, I listened to him talk once, and it just blew my mind, and it was so simple, and everything I'd ever thought since I was about six just kind of clicked into place, because um, I've been kind of grappling with these ideas for a long time, and and then all of a sudden someone said something and it just kind of meshed together. And, um, but those little things like nothing is too small for me to try and do well. And so I'm, I'm actually a very big proponent throughout the day of trying to gather all of the stuff that I do every day and then trying to do it better. So actually making my bed at a certain time and, um, doing the best that I can when it comes to my, uh, exercises in the morning to get my body loose, um, what I eat and how I eat it, how much coffee I have, how I greet my girlfriend when she gets up how I greet her when I come home from doing something, you know, how I tell her I love her, um, the conversations I have, all, all those kinds of things, like how I do my work, um, the stuff that you're actually going to do every day. I try and make sure that I'm doing it as efficiently and as good as I can. And I take good, pr I take pride in that. And I, because I want that responsibility. I don't just want to fuck off through life. Right. And you know, this stuff's all boring because I do it every day and I don't really care. I just want, I just want to watch TV. I just want to have the beer when I get home. Like that isn't enough for me. I want it to, I want to take the pride in knowing that I can do all of these small things. And as I started to do that, my life got drastically better, drastically. I was way less stressed. I slept better. I actually lost a little bit of weight. Um, my pants stopped fitting. Um, I started to fall off. I started to get better at jujitsu. Like all of a sudden, you know, at the time I was getting smashed by everyone, but I started to get smashed a little bit less harder. 
and then I started to escape a little bit yeah. and it was like a noticeable difference for me. Um, you know, things like that. And so, um, something that I always hear a lot, I hear this a lot from black belts, but even just, you know, purple belts and above really, or blue belts might say this to white belts in jujitsu, but, um, you hear people see often, uh, master the basics, right? That That's a big tenet, especially with old school black belts, mm -hmm. like old, old school, you know, from the old lineages, they're like master the basics. And I think that what I'm talking about is what they actually mean. They don't come out and say it. They try and say it the way that they say it. Like you'll always come back to the basics and you should be good at them. So you have a good foundation. But what I think that they actually mean is if you can get good at the things that you do every day, you will be very good at stuff, right? If yeah. you can take the responsibility of that and not just run around and try everything and be kind of good at it, then you will be good. Like you, whatever your good is that you're looking for, you will achieve it at some point because you have the discipline to go through and act, actively figure out how to make all this stuff work. Um, and so I've just been trying to do that. And like I said, most everything in my life is, has gotten drastically better in the last two years. And um, the other big thing I try and do is uh, I try and take charge of the things in my life that are, that are thrown at me instead of sitting back and waiting for the world to run me over. That's kind of the thing that I learned from doing all this is that you have to be proactive. It takes work, right? No one actually likes to make their bed probably because you have to get up and do it, yeah. right? Because if you don't get up and do it, then that means you're actually just still in bed, right? Because you get up and then leave your bed and then you have to come back to it to make it. And that takes energy that you could be doing. You could be spent doing some other mindless tasks like looking at Instagram. And uh, so I suck it up and I go do it. And then it's like, well, I'm up. So I might as well, you know, clean the toilet or do the dishes or uh, do 10, 15 pushups, right? Or whatever, you know, make that phone call I don't want to make. You know, set the doctor's appointment, grab the mail, all the small stuff. And then pretty soon it's all easy because I do it every day and it isn't a chore anymore. It's just something that I do that's part of my routine. And now I can do a lot of push-ups, and I don't even think about making the bed anymore. It just gets made. Um, and that brings me to the last point. I'm not a victim ever. That was, that was a key thing that I learned is that, you know, like most teens, I was very angry. And I was an odd kid. And so I was even angrier because I was odd. And I never really quite understood how to articulate that. So I did that with what teens use, which was like rage. And you, know, you yell and you get angry and you, mm -hmm. you know, rebel. And um, you blame everyone else for your problems. And then I did that into my 20s and, um, you know, developed a small drinking problem and had depression that was undiagnosed for years. And I never knew, never really knew about and never dealt with until... I understood what the heck was going on and then it got, just got better on its own because I fixed the problems. Um, and so I, that's the thing that I kind of realized too is that it's not about being a victim or not a victim. It's just about taking the responsibility and not looking at life that way and moving forward, right? Because you can just be a victim and then you're just kind of stuck waiting for everyone to do stuff to you. There's no proactive goal right. there, right? And that isn't to say that people aren't victimized. Like bad shit happens to people in the world all the time. And there are definitely victims. But there's something to be said for picking yourself up and moving forward and taking the responsibility that you can, whatever that load may be, and just taking a step and then taking another step. And it's hard and it's going to suck, but you do it anyways. Because the alternative to me seems to be pathologically horrible and possibly even deadly depending. And so... Um, 
That's what my personal responsibility is. <laughs> I like it. I like it. Um, Make yours me, happier, so good. <laughs> well, we'll see. Um, to me, the thing, uh, personal responsibility and responsibility, uh, even just the word, um, to be response-able or able to respond is an empowering position. That means you have options that you can do. It doesn't mean, you know, life is fair. Life is absolutely not fair, so don't hang your hat on that. But um, you have the agency to do whatever it is you can to make your situation better rather than uh, relying on your environment or, or some other group to make things better for you. That's the victim mentality. Yeah. Um, I, I've been victimized. Come fix me. Come fix my situation. Um, even if that would be considered completely justified. That's not to say that you're not a victim. That's not to say that something bad didn't happen. But to give yourself the agency to be responsible for what it is, for, for the choices that you make and what you do in your life is huge. Um, and that looks like, as you mentioned, uh, proactivity and self-discipline. Mm -hmm. So don't wait around. Go make something happen. Whatever it is, no matter how limited your, your resources or situation, do, do what you can and have the self-discipline to, you know, do the small things consistently that will, you know, ultimately help your self-esteem. Yes. You know, you know that you're doing, you're keeping the promises that you made to yourself. I'm going to make the bed every day this week or whatever. And yeah. you actually do that at the end of the week. You're like, hey, I did it. I kept the promise to myself. I wonder what else I can do. And it, it kind of snowballs from there. Um, so, yeah, personal responsibility is, is critical to to give yourself the agency and ability to shape your life how you want it to be, um, or as close as is possible. Not to say that, you know, people don't have different circumstances, but um, that's really all you can do. If you, uh, if you go back and read uh, Viktor Frankl's, um, oh, darn it, I forget the name of that book. Victor Man's Frank Search for Meaning. Man's Search for Meaning, thank you very much. Um, there's a point where he's describing the realization that he had that, he actually had more freedom than his captors. Mm -hmm. Now, he didn't have more liberty. He could, they can go around, you know, they can go home to their families and whatnot, and he's stuck in the camp. But by realizing the fact that he could be responsible for his, uh, the way that he responds to a situation. So a thing happens... And he says, there's a small little gap between what happens and what you do where you can make a choice. Yes. Um, and again, you may not have a whole lot of choices. You may be forced into a position where you don't have many choices, but it could simply be the choice to not let the situation break you. And once you give yourself that agency and, and step away from a victim mentality... Again, not to say that you're not a victim. The Holocaust was absolutely horrendous, of course. That's obvious. But to, to be able to allow yourself the empowerment of going, okay, I can still decide how I respond to this situation. Um, and obviously the concentration camps are a very extreme example of that. But from day-to-day mm -hmm. -day life, whether someone cuts you off on the street before you freak out and throw your finger out the window and honk your horn... You can take a second and and think about your response. Maybe you consider that this person is uh, late for an appointment. Maybe they're going to the hospital. Maybe all kinds of things that if you knew the full situation, uh, you would be more understanding. Or 
Even simply, you don't want to let that person get in your head. Mm-hmm. Like, oh yeah, they're upset. I don't want to be upset, so I'm not going to get upset. What's focusing on the things that you can control. Exactly. Um, so to me, that's that's kind of the power of responsibility. It's the ability to respond to the situations in your life. Um, yeah, and that's for me, that was a lesson that I got in my early 20s. I uh, had a shit childhood <laughs> by most measures. Um, and I was, you know, running with the bad crowd, doing hoodlum type stuff. And when uh, I forget exactly how old I was, 20 ish, something like that, um, I had a, a very serious betrayal by whom I thought was my best friend at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, you know, I got really, really angry just at life and everything. And up until that point, I absolutely had the victim mentality. Um, these are all the reasons why I'm pissed off and everything's against me and it's everybody else's fault and, and all that stuff. Um, which, you know, not uncommon for young kids. But um, having that experience um, forced me to make changes in my life just because, you know, everything I, w- I was so angry about everything. Um and, you know, so I started working out, just kind of get to that and realizing that the harder I worked at that, the more results I got. So I was like, oh, wow, this is interesting. If I actually work at this, I can see the results um, and eventually some positive responses from other people, which is kind of nice. Yeah. And that kind of folded into um, learning the philosophy of being personally responsible, being empowered, trying to keep a positive outlook on life and the way that can change your situation. Like for me, it was a dramatic, it was a a 180 in my life's trajectory just because I was doing my best to drive my own boat. Um, So, yeah, I think that's a that's a a key to to any human and their, uh, you know, their growth, growth as a person. Um, I would uh, I would counter that, though, or or try to make a case for what someone may. Uh, reflexively want to think about a statement like that because that's pretty close to uh, you know the the pull yourself up by your bootstraps rhetoric that gets tossed around a lot. Yes, which has a grain of truth, of course, but there is definitely um, there are situations that should be taken into account as well. Meaning, uh, there are really, really tough situations, whether it's, you know, growing up in the projects and, and being poor um, and, you know, being racially profiled by the police and all kinds of stuff like that, that um, it's not in your imagination. It's absolutely happening. And it does make life harder. But even so, like Viktor Frankl, you find the areas where you do have a choice and you make those choices in a way that will support you and your growth in the future versus something that either seems like it may be a benefit in the short term or it's just plain destructive because you're angry and that's going to feel good. Uh, so you're going to want to, you know, hit the streets and riot and loot like mm-hmm. is uh, currently happening. Um, and that that tends to bring you into more of a victim mentality where you give up that agency. You give that to the person that you're mad at, that you're fighting against, and say, my life sucks because of you, and it can never get any better. So therefore, you give that person the power to affect your life. Yes. Versus saying, okay, I'm Fuck responsible you. for my life, yeah. 
And I'm going to find a way that I can change the situation and work at it to make it better rather than just destroy the whole thing and, you know, tear it all down. Mm-hmm. So, what did, uh, what's that speech that Mel Gibson gave, I think, in Braveheart? He's like, you can take our liberty, but you'll never take our freedom. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, I think he screams it. I'm not going to scream. Yeah. <laughs> but um, he like raises the sword and everything. And yeah. it's super emotional. Yeah. I'd, um, my, I would ask, why is it so hard for people to take responsibility? It's because, in my opinion, <clears throat> um, it's easier to take a victim role because then you don't have to do as much work. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would say in an evolutionary sense, um, that makes sense. If you, if you, you know, go back a hundred thousand years where we evolved in such a state that, um, calories were hard to come by and it took a lot of work to just keep yourself alive. Therefore, if there's a time whether it's dark out or uh, it's out of season for some reason, you want to rest. You want to conserve calories. Uh, like within our DNA, the quote-unquote lazy gene um, is there for a reason. To, to be efficient with the energy that you're expending was critical. Um, if you mm-hmm. burn up all your energy and you can't find any food, then you starve to death. Obviously, that's a bad thing, and you are removed from the gene pool. Um, so in a survival sense being lazy has its place. So that's kind of tucked away in our DNA. Um, along with that, even thinking, like I think thinking takes up, they say like 30 to 35% of your calories. I might be pulling that out a little bit, uh, but something along those lines. Basically, um, thinking and thinking deeply is calorically expensive, mm-hmm. right? So that gives another reason for us to want to have simple explanations, not overthink things, um, keep it as easy as possible. Yeah. On the flip side, all of the progress that we've made from um, coming out of the trees, figuring out agriculture, figuring out livestock, figuring out communities, figuring out cities, Physics. figuring out telecommunications mm-hmm. and science and medicine, all that um, – that comes from that deeper level thinking. It comes from going against those genetic urges to be efficient, AKA lazy. Um, I think ultimately that's where that initial uh, drive comes from. And we as, as cognizant human beings um, have the opportunity to recognize that and make that choice to be responsible for that choice and say, you know what, I'm going to do the hard work. I'm going to be self-disciplined. Uh, I'm going to do the thing I don't necessarily want to do now because mm-hmm. that will benefit me in the future. And understanding the benefit of delayed gratification, which is kind of a, you know, a, a higher order of thinking versus just plain survival. We are the only species, I think, on the planet that does that. So Exactly. So that is uh, an incredible tool, but in a way, it's that that came in our evolution later. So the lazy gene is going to be kind of deeper within us in, in kind of the, the lizard brain aspect of it, um, that that's just part of the, the human battle, you know? Yeah. Um, but I, I, that, that's my thoughts of where 
where that originate originates from, why it's there. And why it, it's hard. Yeah, it doesn't make you a bad person to have those urges, but it will make you a better person for yourself to recognize them and say, no, I'm going to make a different choice. Yeah. So I'm, I think we're circling a couple of things, and I'll try We'll see if we can parse them out because it's a lot. Um, one of the big things we're circling is we're talking about m- movement, right? Like you actually have to move to do this stuff literally and, and then also um, procedurally, like as you think. And that's hard. Thinking's hard. Like you mm-hmm. said, it actually does, you know, it expends a lot of calories thinking. Um, and also our brains take up a large, like expend a large amount of oxygen mm-hmm. just to function, right? Um, contrary to belief, most people aren't actually stupid. Um, may seem like that when you look at the news, but people aren't dumb. The, the problem is that thinking's hard. Mm-hmm. And if we don't learn how to think properly through schools, uh, thinking critically gets thrown out all the time. Uh, as far as I can tell right now, the word critical or critically is worthless because of the way it's used, but um, it's being overused for too many reasons or to, to mean too many things. But <laughs> Do you remember when literally actually meant literally? Yeah, right. They It got redefined in the dictionary. Yeah. And... <laughs> And so, like, it's hard to think, and it's hard to think well. You have to spend years upon years upon years upon years thinking. And really what that means is you have to spend years upon years putting your foot in your mouth and then getting laughed at or booed or yelled at or beat up or broken up with or kicked off TV or whatever because it's fucking hard. Mm-hmm. And so it's not it's not self-evident to me that the— uh, it's one of those things where I think that the proper way to move forward in life is to actually move forward and to take responsibility, to bear your responsibility. But it's not clear to me that why anyone would actually want to do that because of how hard it is. Does that make sense? It's yeah. like, I understand the benefit of it because I do it and I actually don't mind the burden of doing it. I actually, I, I derive great pleasure from that. And I'm not sure if that says more about me and my proclivities towards like heart doing difficult things and mm-hmm. I like them um, or that says more about the rest of society, but it seems to me that the default answer would be to do nothing because if I can do nothing and then I still get social credit for it, you know, I'm seen by people as a certain kind of a person and people feel sorry. Let's say I I take the victim narrative. I'm actually not doing anything. Everything is being done to me Mm -hmm. and there's a big social upcry for that. And maybe there's a reason for that, right? Maybe I actually have been victimized and I should have social support and life is hard. Um, but I'm not doing anything and people are paying attention and I have love and I get sympathy and all these things. Like, that's great. You want, cause you want to be a part of a group, right? You like, need to be part of a group. You, you, you actually yeah. need to be part of a group. I think that's a fun, it, it's really difficult for most people to like live a solitary lives. So very few people can actively do that without going insane. We're social creatures. That's why yeah. uh, I, uh, um, uh, the whole, going to the hole in prison, um, Solitary confinement. Solitary confinement. Thank yeah, you. That's sh- why solitary confinement is shoe. such a yeah, yeah uh, such an, a torturous punishment. Yeah, because we are social beings. Right, and so in, in most things we want to, exp- you know, and this is a, a core tenet of say jujitsu. You want to expend the least amount of energy to get the most out of it. Right. So mm-hmm. I want to use as little muscle and energy as possible to do whatever I'm trying to do to you. Right. Especially if you're bigger than me, because mm-hmm. then it's just harder. So I, I don't want to waste energy, right? And it's kind of the same thing. It's like I want to expend the least amount of energy to get the most amount of social points, right? And that fundamentally does make sense. The problem 
that you run into is that it is a problem of meaning. Like, what does that mean for your life? Right? Like, not only are we social, we're also highly driven individuals who have to have a goal or an aim in life in order to, honestly, I think to live. I don't think that people by and large, or maybe even anyone individually, there's probably somebody, but can actively live in the world without some sort of an aim. Whether that aim is simple, like I need to pee today. Would it be closer to say thrive? Sure. Because you can make it through 60 or 80 years of an incredibly negative and, and victim victimized life that um, to me would be horrendous and really suck. But you lived, but you certainly didn't thrive. Yeah. I, I, could, I could concede to that. I, I would be curious to see how someone could go too long without a, like, what would be the reason to live would be the question I would ask, right? Survival instincts. Sure. And so there's an aim, though, for that. Like, what's the reason for that survival instinct? Like, what about life is good enough for that person to live? Like, does I, that make sense? It does. I would venture to say, uh, in the evolutionary sense, um, the uh, the mandate, the genetic mandate, is essentially to uh, survive long enough to pass on your genes, right? Sure. And that survival instinct within every living creature uh, is about as base as you get. Mm -hmm. So regardless of what you think of your life, your genetics and your biology want to try and stay alive as long as possible. That's just yeah. that's a built-in feature. So that that would be the the default position, mm -hmm. regardless of how miserable you are, um, unless you have like true clinical depression, then well, you want to at least stay alive. I think that would be the drive for that is just the genetic survival instinct, even if your life sucks and you complain mm -hmm. about it. Uh, and I've, I've known people that that was their existence. Yeah. Um, but that's. Well, and we're, you know, we're kind of teetering on the choice between surviving, say, to procreate just to do that, roughly speaking, versus taking your own life. Right. Right. And But that's a choice that we do make, we can make as, as a species. And um, and like I said, I'll, I'll concede that there's definitely going to be people who could easily, that's what they have. That's it. It's, it's, it's the base level of necessity to stay alive. For most people, though, and maybe even these people too, like still having that aim is a reason to get up in the morning, right? Because think about it this way, that individual, let's say it's a guy. If they just stay at home all day, a woman's not just going to fall on his lap and then he's going to procreate like magically. Right. Right. Like he has to actually do something. Mm -hmm. Or if it's a woman, same thing. You have to actively do something. And so that base drive may be there, but they have to actively do stuff to attain it. And maybe life is horrible for them and they don't want to do anything. So it may be actually difficult to do, right? And so not having that is hard. And I think that a lot of people, or most, I mean, I, I need it in order to move, right? And I'm trying to find the best way to explain it moving forward. I kind of lost the train of thought as we were talking, but um, that drive to find a higher order meaning in life 
is I think what separates the individual from the group. And I think it's why it's necessary in order to advance, right? I don't know if that makes any sense. Yeah, I, I, <clears throat> I think that falls in with, uh, you know, uh, Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Yes. If you're in a situation where you've got your, your basic survival mm -hmm. handled, yes. right? Uh, if, uh, you know, quote unquote, survival is guaranteed, mm -hmm. nobody's gonna let you starve to death. It's, you know, we're, we're here in America, you're, you're gonna have food, you're gonna have shelter more, more than likely. Even if you don't, you can figure something out. But if those things are handled, if the base needs are handled, then to thrive as a person, um, absolutely. You need, yeah. you need that, a, a, a striving for enlightenment, whatever enlightenment looks like for you. I wish to say fulfillment, striving yeah. for fulfillment in some way. Yeah. And I just found out because like, I kind of lost my place. I, ju I just brought it back. So um, that, str that striving, it seems antithesis to me to claiming the victim narrative. That was where I was trying to go with yeah. that. I was trying to come yeah. full circle with that. Because in even if, let's say, your goal is to gather as much social points as possible. So I want to be... I want to have as much social power as I can. And this seems to me to be the easiest way to get it. At what point is it enough? And what's the end game for you? Because there's a goal you're trying to reach and that's social power, let's say, because it's ultimately kind of, especially now with social media, that's what it is, mm -hmm. right? Is that everyone, you get all the likes and the retweets and the calls and whatever's. At some point though, you're going to reach a, a threshold where that just no longer has the effect it did a month ago or a day ago or a year ago. So what's the end game? And then if you hit that point, what do you have? Like, because we're in, we're in an era now where all of the things that Pavlov talked about, um, we have taken care of for the most part. Maslow. Maslow, sorry. Pavlov's the guy, the, the dogs. The dogs, yeah, yeah. Um, so um, we have most of those things taken care of. So we kind of have to s figure these out on our own, right? And it isn't clear to me that even though it's the easiest thing to do, it's the best thing in the long run because in the long run, if there's, like I said, I, I don't understand what the end game is with it. Like, versus if I have an end goal of trying to be the best person that I can, and that starts making the bed, and then I don't necessarily know where it's going to be, but I know that along the way, I'm always going to learn and be doing new things versus just laying back and hopefully it gets better and it gets better and it's better. Um, one to me seems so much, even though it's harder work, one to me seems so much better in the long run that I don't understand how people actively will cry the victim narrative for a long period of time. I, like that, that's part of the problem that I have. I understand like bad things happen and you're like, this sucks. But I don't get using that for social power I, uh, I don't I think, know if I'm being clear on that. Yeah, I, I think I understand. And I, I think the answer to that would be uh, because it's rewarded. And if you're not consciously um, trying to utilize delayed gratification in your life, mm -hmm. have the understanding that being disciplined about whatever it is will uh, be better in the long run, even though it's harder now. Yes. It's very easy to do whatever works today. Mm -hmm. um, I can get on social and cry victim or point fingers and blame and get those social brownie points. And they're very real. 
you do get rewarded for that. You definitely get the dope. What's the dopamine hit, right? Right. So. And without thinking about the long-term effects of that, you're like, yay, this works. Let's do more of what works. So I think it's it's having the understanding of personal responsibility is not the default for people. You have to learn that. Yeah. And if you haven't learned that, then you're just going to do what works right now. Um, and that's, that's normal. You know, that, like I said, that's going to be instinctual to, to do the thing that is, is right for you now. Um, and also, society is more than happy to cater to that in the sense that it becomes profitable for other people that do understand delayed gratification mm -hmm. to build businesses that make your life as absolutely convenient as possible. So if I make your life really, really easy so you don't have to do anything and you're going to give me money for it, yeah, then that's a win for me and you're going to feel that it's a win for you. Um, and, and in many ways it is. I mean, modern conveniences are great. Yes. Um, but the, um, the driving force behind that is just going to feed you more. They're not going to tell you um, okay, now you need to go out and do some work. They're going to say, buy this widget so you don't have to do that work. And that's where the profit lies. If it was profitable to get people to do their own work and be responsible and, and uh, understand delay gratification, then there would be some market force that addresses that as well. Sure, sure. Um, it's, it's not something that has uh, good or evil intentions. It just has profitable intentions. And uh, as I said before, I think, lower at a base level within our DNA is the lazy gene. Yeah. And if you can tap into that, that makes it easy. I don't have to think as much. Bang, let's do it. Um, and there's money to be made from it. So. so two things. It sounds to me like a recipe for creating a bunch of Peter Pans, people who never grow up. Mm-hmm. And secondly, and with that, I think in partnership, um, is the creation of, I think what Carl Jung referred to as the devouring mother. Uh, the devouring mother, roughly, um, roughly speaking, is the overprotective or the overbearing mother who won't let her kid out of her sight, right? Mm -hmm. So you have like the good mother and the bad mother, you know, good father and the bad, the good king and the bad king, what have you, you know. In modern um, times, helicopter parenting. Correct. Yeah, yeah. But um, on a much more psychological and a physical level. Um, in that, you know, if you go outside of my purview, something bad will happen. And then, well, the person, Peter Pan, is gets victimized because the world sucks and there's a lot of problems in it. And then comes back and mother says, see, I told you, don't ever leave me. I'll keep you safe. And then you have, you know, a, a market that's designed to cater to that as you were just specifying. So let's make your life easier so you don't actually have to go out into the world and learn new things because we'll handle this. And then there's no reason to move because it sucks when you do and you have everything you need to stay still, right? Sure. Um, that's terrifying to me. That I, that, that is truly terrifying to me. And um, I, I often am grateful that even though I am a millennial, for whatever reason, um, and my mom was fairly strict with me and uh, definitely very worried about me going outside and leaving her line of sight and staying out till past dark and all those kinds of things. And, you know, she, uh, um, but she allowed it nonetheless. 
And I think I was lucky in that her and my stepfather and my grandfather were all very much like, go eat dirt, go get hurt, be home by dinner. Much as it scared her, she was like, you need to go out into the world Mm -hmm. and like deal with shit on your own. Yeah. You know, maybe be with friends. Don't do it alone just to be more safe, but you know, go do your thing. And it's, it's such a, like the, this whole, the whole thing is such a foreign concept to me. I think partly because of that, because I grew up in an era where like I had to learn how to deal with actual things mm-hmm. that actually occurred in the real world that were actually real. I, I, it's, it's because um, we have it too easy right now. And there's like good, like you said, there's goods and bads about mm-hmm. that. It's like we, we should celebrate our technological advancements. And I think that we should push those as far as we can push those. But at the point that they start to make our lives so easy that a lot of our natural biological gifts become obsolete, like the ability, you know, the need to go and like look for things and work hard and like maybe till the ground or forge for your own food or mm-hmm. get out of your own couch to go do something like there, there's like a delicate balance there where it's like sometimes at some point you got to get your hands dirty absolutely you know well i i uh i forget who said it but uh there's a saying that uh hard times make hard men hard men make good times good times make soft men mm-hmm. and soft men make hard times yeah so we have very soft times right now mm-hmm. um this is this is the best time to be alive that has ever been in terms of your uh, likelihood of surviving and, and raising a family and such. Um, yeah. No matter how hard your life is, and that's not to say that it's easy, but a uh, hundred years ago, a thousand years ago, it would have been much harder. So, um, particularly with you know with the current climate, where we have not had uh, an event like. Uh, and, you know, maybe 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 we're in the middle of one currently here in 2020. But up until this point, things like the Great Depression, things like World War One and two that were really genuinely hard for everyone. Um, I mean, our hard time right now is people don't want to wear masks to help each other and they have to stay inside, even though you can FaceTime and Zoom to do your work and, and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, even this situation a hundred years ago would have been so much worse. I'm sure it was in, in 1918. Um, so relatively speaking, we have very soft times Yes, and it makes it really easy to complain about silly stuff. Um, because in some way that's kind of in our nature to, you know, want to change things or fix things. Mm-hmm. Oh, I don't like this. Uh, and if you don't have a, a proactive and positive outlook on that, then you're just going to want to tear it all down because you don't like it, because you don't know what real struggle is. And again, not to take away from uh, actual racial struggles that are you know still going on today. Sure. It's very real. Um, but even for, quote unquote, racialized populations... Um, you know, for the black community and the brown community, this is the best time to be alive. Ask, ask any of your black friends whether they want to be alive now or 100 years ago. Sure. You know, that's a no brainer. So it doesn't mean there isn't stuff that shouldn't be fixed. But I think it's a byproduct of just having soft times, which in and of itself is a win. But it doesn't force us. Sure, sure, sure. To 
confront problems. Confront problems and really demand from ourselves mm -hmm. a higher level of performance because when times are hard, that's absolutely mandatory. Well, know? exactly. And kind of here's how I think about it as well is, you know, there's a lot of bad things that occur in the world, right? There's a lot of bad people. And there's a lot of think you know, the world is suffering. Like a, there's a lot of suffering in the world, whether it's in the U.S., you know, obviously to a lesser degree compared to basically everywhere else, but there's a lot of suffering. And so what, what the question will be, what, what's to be done about it? Right near as I can tell, there's basically two ways to look at that. One is you can point the finger externally, identify a problem and blame that individual or that group or that system, whatever it is. Or you can look inward and kind of identify the things that you are doing that either are causing the problem, if that be the case, or mm -hmm. if not, just identify the things that you could be doing that would make your life better to start. Right. And then, so you're essentially dealing with the things that you can control. Um, and there's like an individualistic notion to that that I find very important to personal responsibility. And I mean, I guess it's kind of in the title personal, but um, you know, we are social, we have to be in groups. I think we we you know, we need to be to make it through the world, and we want to have families and have spouses and have friends and things, but we have to be able to step outside of those those groups, right? As an example, innovation only occurs when an individual steps outside of a group and goes further than everyone else to get something done. Mm -hmm. That's how all innovation ever has ever been done. Is someone was by themselves, roughly speaking, stepped away from the social norms of the time and figured something out, and so. You need both. You need to be able to be a part of a group and to associate with it, however that may be. But you also need to have the ability to step outside of it and make your own decisions and be responsible for your own actions and step into new groups, create your own group, or just simply leave the group and come back with new information, right? Otherwise, um, what I think, and I think we're kind of seeing this uh, a lot in, in the media, but if Roughly speaking, a group is full of people who all know the same information. There's going to be a little bit of variance there, but you associate yourself with the group because you understand what the group, what's the core part of the group, mm -hmm. you know, whether it's you're a group based on race or religion or um, your love for a certain subject, right? You, you, you know what that is. The problem with a group is that if you don't allow anyone new in or you don't allow someone to leave and be an individual and come back, you never learn any new information. Mm -hmm. So you, you only move forward if you even attempt to move forward, if you can um, move forward through the world with the same information that you've always had, right? And this is how people actually die, right? Because as time goes by, if you don't update your model of the world with how things have changed, then you might try something that worked a year ago or yesterday and it doesn't work anymore, right? right. And so you, ha you have to update, you have to allow for individualism, otherwise that will occur. And so, uh, yeah, I, and I see that with the narrative that we have, you know, that victim style narrative, um, and there's more to it than just that, but I, I see this echo chamber. I think it's the term that people like to use where only the ideas that they approve of are put in. Anything that is, tries to get put in with it is rejected mm -hmm. um, fundamentally in part because it's an individual idea and you reject it has to be group not individual so it's a problem 
but as a result, everything revolves around itself and nothing new comes in. And so it gets parasitic over time, which is partly, I think, why we see polarization right now. Right? Oh, big time. Yeah. Because we have, that's very polar and toxic just in and of itself, irregardless of what's going on anywhere else. But when you have that, when anyone tries to talk or become a part of it and they get rejected, they're going to respond with an even larger reaction, right? So you push me, I push you harder. You push me really hard, mm -hmm. I punch you. You punch me, I kick you, right? It escalates. Yeah. Yeah. And so what you see is you see a rise in what is, you know, what, what is essentially collectivism or tribalism, right? Across the political spectrum. And... Mm -hmm. Which obviously is not good. Like it doesn't even matter how where you align politically. It's it's just a problem. Tribalism. We, I think we evolved from that a few thousand years ago, and I can't understand why. Like everything right now is boiled down to your politics and your race and your gender and your gender orientation and your sexual identity. I, I would argue that we did not evolve beyond that at all. We, <laughs> we, we figured out we figured out how to make cities and stuff, but we definitely did not evolve away from tribalism. One of the first things I think of with that, and it, it's absolutely correct in my view that that's what's going on. Um, and again, back to genetically in our DNA um, as hunter-gatherers, mm -hmm. having a tribal mentality was important um, where you stick with your group and uh, some other group may have nefarious intentions. So you stick with your group and make sure you keep you know, essentially your family and your tribe safe. Um, so that part is just kind of built into us and, and is still there for sure. Now, having, having gone through, maybe still going through the information revolution, you know, the internet, the irony of that is, is where normally in a tribal situation, like, like you said, you're only going to have so much information that is within the tribe and you're not going to learn a whole lot else because that's all the information that's available to you if you are sticking with your tribe. Um, now, we have the world of information literally in your pocket, mm -hmm. but what has been a uh, an ironic result, I won't say intended or unintended, but the ironic result of effectively finding your own echo chambers, meaning the search engines that drive what it is that we see, and same with the social networks, have evolved to the point, and it's, it's an evolution because all the, the intent for the driving forces behind this meaning um, Google and Facebook and Twitter and, and these platforms that we interact with is to keep you involved. Mm -hmm. uh, their model just requires you to, to hang out on the platform as long as you possibly can. Then we can show you more ads. We can make more money. So that's their incentive. And what we've discovered is people like to see things and read things that they agree with. And we can, you know, the programmers can create the algorithms such that they are self-generating echo chambers. Mm -hmm. If you like this, well, you're probably going to like this and you're probably going to like this. And because we live in a time now 
where there is so much information available, it's very easy to 24-7 every day of the year absorb information that you already agree with because there is so much of it. And I think, and this is something that, that I haven't heard many people talk about, but I think there is a sense of everyone, meaning when you think about your social group and say, well, everyone I know thinks Donald Trump sucks or whatever. Everyone thinks X. Mm -hmm. We all have this agreement. In order to get that belief in your mind, it doesn't take that many people. No. So it's the understanding of what actually is everyone, we'll say at a country level, 330 million or whatever the actual population is, versus um, coming from a place of Dunbar's number, meaning that you know roughly 150 people that you can kind of keep track of and right. actually know. Um, as you get close to that, if you you know if if you are interacting with 50 people in your group that all say the same thing, you're gonna think everybody thinks this way. That's just how everybody thinks. No, that's just 50 people. That's not that many at all. But yeah. it's going to feel instinctually like a lot everyone, of right? So that's going to tighten up the tribes. No matter how ridiculous we believe in flat Earth, you will absolutely find enough people that agree with everything you say, and it will feel like everyone feels that way because you can saturate yourself every second of every day with that same information. The the new challenge that we have as a society is to proactively seek out information that we don't necessarily agree with mm -hmm. or find information that we simply didn't know existed um, and to take that upon ourselves to try to expand our knowledge base versus mm -hmm. just taking what is fed to us by the mechanisms that profit by showing you stuff you already like. And not only showing you stuff that you already like, but as it turns out, showing you stuff that pisses you off. Yeah. That's what generates the most engagement. Again, it's not, I don't believe it's, it was with nefarious intent on the part of, you know, Google and Twitter, but they basically just ran testing. They tried a little bit of everything and it turns out what works, what keeps people engaged, what keeps them on their platforms, what get more eyeballs on their advertising is showing you things that piss you off. Mm -hmm. And that has created a self-polarizing social network situation that is now, you know, manifesting in the streets as, you know, the us versus them postmodern madness uh, that we're dealing with today. And it's, it's unprecedented. This, this is genuinely a, a new thing for humanity. Well, I think it's a problem that we don't know how to deal with as, as, as a society, right? Yeah. The, the it's novel. It's like a novel yeah. coronavirus. It's a novel information virus. Well, yeah, the technical revolution that we have gone through is so absurd so quickly mm -hmm. that like no one knows the rules of it you know and um yeah as you were kind of describing like what people need to do that's what personal response that's the other thing that personal responsibility is for me like I, I i feel obligated as an individual to look at things that i don't agree with to get different points of view mm -hmm. otherwise i don't feel that i can actually have a conversation or i can say anything and I, and I mean that seriously because if I only ever read the things that I personally like and believe in all the time, I'll never learn, first off, if there's other things that I might believe in 
but I never learn oppo like opposing points of view. Like I may just be wrong. Like yeah. straight up, I could just be wrong, right? I grew up in a conservative town, so maybe the conservative values that I grew up with, and I'm not really that conservative, but maybe those values that I grew up with are just wrong. And if I don't ever look at other points of view, I will never figure that out. Right. And it's like, that seems to me to be a disservice, not only to other people, but also to who I am as an individual. And for myself, I actually can feel the disharmony within myself when I don't do that. Like I, I feel, I get anxious. I feel stressed. I, 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 there's like a disharmony that goes on in my bones when I start to realize that I'm not spending enough time actively trying to seek out new information. I don't know a better way to describe that. It's, um, it's probably a similar feeling to what most people feel when someone disagrees with them and they feel righteously angry about it. Mm -hmm. You know, like you have a, let's say you're pro-life and you have some, a conversation with someone who's pro-choice and you get like viscerally angry and you have like an anxiety attack because how dare they? Mm -hmm. It's similar to that response, right? Where it's like, I feel like I need to learn more. Like I, I, I feel, you know, I, I have to do it because otherwise I'm not growing as a person. And it took me, like I said, it took me 30 years to figure that out. You know, I went through all of college parroting ideas that I had heard that sounded good or, you know, depending on, you know, the year I was in, what, what grade I was in in college or how much I had drank, um, you know, ideas that were provocative, right? <laughs> sure. You know, because that's the time to, to parrot provocative ideas yeah. and, and foment social revolution and all that. And so, but, you know, you, you parrot an idea and then someone gets angry and you're like, oh, this is a good idea. Because it, clearly it's a good one to piss someone off. <laughs> you know, like, I, I'm just going to do this just to piss you off because I don't care, you know. and But wasn't really aware of the, the disharmony that would go along with saying things that I don't actually believe. Until I got much older and, and now it's one of those things where it's every time it occurs, like, there's some, there's a dysregulation in my body where I'll say something and it's, or, or I'll think something or I'll listen to something too much. And I'm like... I need to get another point on this. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I need to see if there's another angle with which to break this idea down because I'm, I'm getting too much of this same thing, right? The, the, it can't be that good because, you know, if you hear an idea enough and it resonates and then you hear it over and over and over again, it becomes the best idea. It's like, how could anyone not believe this? Mm -hmm. And once I get to that point, it's like, well, there's obviously something wrong with it because if how could, if the question is, how could everyone not believe this and everyone doesn't believe it? then either I'm really smart and everyone's really dumb or there's something wrong with the idea, right? Right. Because otherwise people would just believe in the idea, you yeah. know, because it's a good idea. Yeah. And that with most ideas, that actually isn't the case. And so it's trying to find the nuance of why the idea is wrong and, and you know, why it's right too or what are the, the benefits of it. And as I learned all of this, as I started to learn this, I very quickly realized that... Um, that that's bad to do that is bad apparently socially i think i think it's a good thing to do i yeah. think i think it's one of the things that our society is actively missing um and that's but it for whatever reason and i mean that's also why we started this podcast right is to have these discussions but it's interesting to me that that having 
these kinds of discussions is bad. And, you know, I, I pull that back to the individual versus like the group um, and that victim mentality thought of not doing anything right. The victim mentality and the group, they seem synonymous to me a lot of the, or synonymous in the right word, they map onto each other because in both situations you don't do very much and the ideas you have aren't new. In both situations you can do something, get a result, and it's generally it's the expected result. And if it's not, then the whole group dissolves. But you don't really learn anything new and move forward. Right. And so you need the individual to do that. Hey, everyone. Apologies for the interruption. We had to take a break to change the batteries in our recorder. Okay, let's get back to the podcast. Okay, and we're back. All right, sweet. Um, I forget exactly what we were talking about. <laughs> Um, we were talking about... I was probably railing against collectivism. This seems like the most likely thing. Because <laughs> I, I fundamentally disagree with forms of collectivism and lack of individualism. Yeah, well, I, I, For me, I, I think you need both. In order yes. to excel as an individual and have the best environment to do so, uh, there needs to be a collective effort for your community or society. Um, but neither can be too constrained. That's the problem. Exactly. That I see is that... You need both, essentially. Yeah, um, and so... As part of... This is actually why I think that people should take personal responsibility and start with themselves. And so I'll, I'll tie these two together. Um, when it comes to, like, say, activism, or, you know, we're seeing a lot of that right now. People are out you know, looting and stuff, but they're protesting and that's all fine and good. And we should, have, I don't, I think people should have obviously the right to do that. I don't ever want to take that right away, but it strikes me as odd that individuals would or feel that they have the ability or, or have the wherewithal or the um, knowledge to protest and attempt to change the world when they can barely do the things that we were talking about at the top of this podcast. Like most people hate making the bed and doing the dishes and dressing, you know, dressing well and getting their hair cut and shaving and showering properly and talking to their spouse properly and, you know, engaging with their kids and all the little things that you do every day. Those are all a big problem. That's why we have, you know, kids who have behavioral problems and that's why we have divorces, among other things. But and why we have people who are mediocre at their jobs or jump from job to job is because all these little things are neglected, but they feel very strongly about global, global economics and global hunger issues and climate change and all of these big issues that 99.9% .9 of people can't actually solve because they don't have the knowledge to do so. And that doesn't mean you shouldn't try to solve those things, right? I mean, they're noble goals to attempt to try and solve, but it seems to me that when an 18-year-old, let's say, is running around claiming or, you know, wanting to solve the racial issues of the world when they can't even turn their homework in on time, like that sort of thing seems like a disconnect to me. It's like, look, that's a noble goal to attempt to, to, to solve that problem. But a more immediate problem might be to figure out how to be a functioning adult. And maybe if you can be a functioning adult and you can do that and make yourself the best person that you can be while simultaneously trying to make the people around you that you live with the best that they can be. So maybe that's a spouse or maybe that's kids or roommates. And then if you can also do that and then also make the people that are directly outside of that circle. So your, you know, your cousins and your parents you don't live with or your friends, maybe that's a better place to start. That seems to me to be a better option 
um, than running around being angry at the world at things that you can really only control on a local level. Does that make sense? Like, it does, I, 100%. I, I think the... <clears throat> it seems the, like a futile effort to me. It, it seems like mis... Futile is not the right word. It seems like the premise is solid. Like what I want to... Like I've identified a problem and I want to solve it. Yes, there's a problem and it should be solved. And then you turn the other direction and try and solve... Or you, maybe you just try and bite the, the head off of it and the head's too big when you should start somewhere smaller, right? It, 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 it seems to me like it might be better. People, I think, are too arrogant to start small and try and work their way up. Maybe that's what it is. I don't know. And maybe they feel that they can take off more than they can chew and that if they scream loud enough, change will occur. And it's like, or maybe you should just try and be a good father to your kids or a good husband to your wife. Maybe you should tell the truth at work or do your work on time or be nice to your coworker who's kind of rude and repair that relationship. And then as you repair the relationships around you, maybe their lives will get a little bit better too. And so if you know 150 people, is that Dunbar's Law, is that what you're saying? Mm -hmm. And then each of them knows 150 people. And then each of them knows 150 people. You're like three degrees away from a billion Right. And so mathematically, it'd have to be different. People are going to know the same people. But uh, yeah, but I exponentially, mean, if you, you if you grow that enough, like at some point, it's like you maybe you, you know, what's the, this, the six degrees of Kevin Bacon, right? Mm -hmm. Like at some point, maybe yeah. you could you, you it's a plausible, but maybe you could potentially fix your life and the life of the people around you up enough that you could actually affect change amongst everyone in your state or your city or your region or your country. Or your continent. I mean, which is the ultimate goal anyways. And then at the same time, you might also, you know, you might also have your stuff together too. And then good things might, more good things might occur for you versus anger. And I don't think they necessarily need to be mutually exclusive. Um, I definitely agree with, you know, starting at home, starting with yourself, be the best person that you can be. Uh, and I think you can work towards a greater cause and work to make a difference in that way as well. Um, I think what is an easy trap to slide into is tall poppy syndrome, meaning um, if one person is doing well, the easiest thing to do to feel better about yourself is to drag them down. Mm -hmm. Like there's two ways to have the tallest building in town. You either build the tallest building or you burn all the rest of them down. So yours is now the tallest building in town. Um, and it, in many ways, that's just going to be easier. Mm -hmm. um, and there's a, a potentially a sense of cognitive dissonance there as well that allows you to feel good about yourself by tearing other people down. Yes, uh, it's it's you know the, the train wreck syndrome. It's it's why things like Jersey Shore was popular. Basically, you, you can watch a show like that and say, well, at least I'm not that fucked up, and you feel better about yourself. <laughs> um, so if there is something else to blame, uh, regardless of whether or not it's true, it will feel like um, 
you're doing good. You're not to blame. They are to blame. They are the problem. I am the good person mm -hmm. uh, in whatever context. Regardless of whether or not that's true, uh, it's, it's an unempowered and a victim type of mentality that is ineffective for real substantial change, in my opinion. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I've tried to figure this out for two years now, and I, I just, I don't understand it. Even when people, like all people all listen to podcasts or whatever, where people will try and explain like why it's good. And I just, it just doesn't, for whatever reason, it doesn't resonate. Maybe I'm just stubborn and an ass. I don't know. Like maybe that's why it is. I, I don't know, but I, it, it seems to me to be the lazier way to handle the situation. Oh yeah, hundred percent. It also seems shallow to me. Like I, I don't, I don't understand. Like it doesn't resonate. It's like I derive a lot from at the end of the day knowing that I've put in good work. Not necessarily that I worked really hard and like therefore it is good. It's that the work that I did was hard and it was good because. I did something the way I needed to do it, not just for the sake of working hard, but because it was necessary and I did a good job. And versus, yeah, I, I'm, we're, we're going to talk more about this over over the next few, over, over the podcast because it, I, I, have, I grapple with it so hard. Like I just, I, it, it goes over my head. It's like, I don't know why you would want to do that. I think, and I don't want this to sound like arrogant or anything like that, but I think you're in, you're in the personal growth enlightenment phase, meaning um, if you've been making significant changes in your life for the past mm. couple of years, um, it is astounding and eye-opening yeah. and like, holy crap. And how come everybody else doesn't get this? Yeah. Right? Um, first, I would say, what would your 18-year-old self think about any of these topics? Sure. Probably differently. Therefore, without exposure to and proper mental digestion of mm -hmm. um, that type of, we'll call it personal growth material, the natural human defaults are what we see. Yeah. So how could they think that way? Well, it's because they don't or won't understand some of these concepts because they are counterintuitive because they require hard work um so it's not obvious it's something that you need to learn and i think culturally we used to learn these principles just by the nature of survival because life was hard you had to, yeah yeah if, you, if you're growing up on a farm um you're gonna have to work hard and that's just how, you know, you can't even think of any other way. And the benefits that you gain from that, you kind of consider that the default. How could anybody else be so lazy to think differently? Yeah. So it's kind of, it's what you're exposed to. Um, that's probably it then because my 18-year-old self was very rebellious and such. But when I grew up, my, my grandfather in particular um, was very big on making me do manual labor. Like I was always working at their house, getting paid, you know, $2 an hour in, in the late 90s and um, or whatever. Maybe it'd give me 10 bucks to go buy, you know, to go to a, an arcade or something. But it was always you need to work hard. Like that's how you get somewhere in life is mm -hmm. that, you know, you don't fluff off. You don't do and you don't do a shit job either. Like you work hard and you do a good job. Otherwise, I'm not going to pay you. Yeah. 
And maybe that's what it is, is that that was instilled in me in such a young age, even though, you know, I grew up in the 90s and the 2000s, like I have all the technological advances that a millennial has. So like I've had comparatively a fairly easy life compared to, you know, our parents and grandparents, of course, like anyone else my age. But that hard work, I think, that was instilled at such a young age, maybe that's why it's hard for me to contemplate. Is it even at 18, even though I was lazier than I am now um, and, you know, angrier? It was never, I've never in my, ever felt that like the world was against me and what was me. Like, and there's all these people that are the problem and it's not me. I've always felt that like, yeah, life is hard and I'm, you know, an interesting and I've always been very weird. And so like that was hard, you know, as a teenager when you're an odd guy. You know, you get a lot of shit here, for here. that. Yeah, you, you get a lot of shit for that, you know, and, 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 and you learn really quickly, like in college, like how to be social because it, you you kind of have to if you want to have friends. <laughs> but, um, you know, I, so there was there was that, but it was never like, oh, my gosh, like, woe is me. Like, the world is so terrible. Like, I'm, I can't handle this. It's like, well, I got to work hard. Mm-hmm. You know, my work ethic now was way different than it was when I was 18 because I was 18 and didn't know anything and was, you know, didn't care as much, you know, so you, you kind of screw off and pretend like it's work. But, um, yeah, that, that, my, my assumption then is that's probably what it was. Is just that maybe we're collectively as a society raising a generation of people or a couple of generations of people who have lost that work ethic. Maybe that's soft what it times. Yeah. Soft times. Like maybe that's what it is. Is it like these, everything is so much harder because this is the hardest thing they've ever had to deal with, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. And, um, no, which isn't to say that what's going on right now isn't hard, right? It is for a lot of people, but yeah, that's, I'm going to noodle on that more because it, it, I see it and I'm just like, I don't under, like, I just, I still, I just don't get it. It's like, okay, like, yeah, like <laughs> you won't. What now though? It's it's like, okay, like there's all these problems and like, what now? Like, how do we, how, how do you move forward? Like, it's a big part of the problem that I have with, um, you know, a lot of the current narrative is it's like, okay, you've pointed out a problem and I disagree with the actual problem, um, the overarching problem, but you've pointed it out and that's the problem we need to dismantle patriarchy or whatever, whatever we're talking or whiteness or whatever we're talking about. Okay. So that means five things. So it depends on what you mean by that, but you've identified the problem. Now what, how do we solve the problem outside of like actual revolution, which apparently is not what anyone means, but they actually mean that outside of it. What do you do? Like that's the thing. It's not outside of it. Tear it all down. Yeah. And so, but you'll never actually hear, anyone with any kind of legitimate power say that they want to actually tear it down because to admit that people want to tear down the entirety of the structure of the society, I mean, that would be, that would create a literal revolution. And so you do hear it, but it, until the day that Joe Biden stands up after he wins an election, if he does and says, we're going to tear down the, the system, like, or something, someone with, with similar levels of social power, it's like, if that's not the end game, then how do we fix the problem? Because there are actual problems. And it seems to me that whatever it is that's being used isn't going to actually fix the problems. It's just here to bitch about them. I think that that question is at the heart of this podcast. Yeah. Um, I think the, the current 
end game, as you put it, is revolution. Uh, it seems that that group of people believes that the correct answer is to tear it all down, which is ridiculous. Um, and I think it, you know the, the reason I was I wanted to do this in the first place was kind of to to put up a flag and hopefully get reasonable people into this conversation. Mm -hmm. People that you know, what we're talking about so far resonates with them so that we can come together because the people that are making these changes right now, you know, the, the woke activists, um, it's a new one. I like that. I just came up with it. I don't know. It seemed to fit. Um, that should be our podcast. Yeah. <laughs> new podcast name, the woke activists. <laughs> um, it seems like they are a very vocal minority in terms of actual society. However, um, given the nature of social media and the way if they put that effort into being as loud as they can on social media and the way that magnifies the experience of quote unquote everyone. So people that may or may not agree with that, they listen to it and they hear X amount of voices saying this, well, mm -hmm. crap, everybody thinks this is the way, maybe it is. Um, when clearly this is not the, the correct path to move forward. And I think it's up to the rest of us, the, you know, the, the silent centrists or however you want to call it to make our voices heard as well. Um, this podcast hopefully being a small piece of that. Um, but to have the reasonable conversations to acknowledge that, yes, there are actual problems that need to be addressed. Mm -hmm. Systemic racism is a thing. Um, but just because you're white does not automatically mean you are racist. That's nonsense. And we're not going to redefine words. Words have meaning. Um, but equal opportunity is still not the case for a lot of people in our country. Sure. So how can we fix that? What is the best way forward to actually fix that? Not to tear everything down because we're mad, but to fix the situation. Um, I've got this analogy that I've been playing with, and, and let me know how this sits. But if, uh, if the refrigerator goes out in your house, right, and maybe some of your food spoils, and, and maybe for whatever reason you didn't notice and you, you eat something and you get sick— that's a problem. Mm -hmm. That's a real problem. You got sick. You need to fix the fridge. The answer is not to burn down the house. Yeah. So we have things that we need to fix, but we also have a structure that is very sound. This democratic democratic experiment that we are living in right now, you know, the United States of America, has a lot of really, really good things going forward. Yes. That we should share with everyone and give an equal opportunity, not equal outcome, but equal opportunity yes, yes, to yes. everyone. Um, that is absolutely something that, that I want to strive for in, in whatever way I can. Uh, but the current strategy that the... You know, the, the woke folks are pushing forward is ridiculous. It's it's Marxist in nature, which has been tried so many times and failed every time that it, it's it should seem completely obvious. And it's not, a, oh, they just didn't do it right. It's no, it's a flawed philosophy. Well, it's a flawed philosophy that's mixed with another flawed philosophy. So I think that the first thing to understand is that it's um, it's not, I mean, it's Marxist, yes, but it's a move from class struggle to race slash gender struggle. Like that, that, that I mean, it's mm -hmm. the same thing. Yep. It, like fundamentally, the, right. you know, you have the bourgeois class or gen race, 
and then you have the proletariat race, like fundamentally, right? right. You, you you can map those on, and they're exactly the same. The oppressed and the oppressors. Correct. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it, that's literally the language they use, right? And so it, it very clearly comes from that, but at the same time, it pulls from from postmodernism, and it pulls a couple of things from postmodernism, near as I can tell, that um, some of which are valid. Like one of the big postmodern claims is this notion that there's an infinite number of ways to view the world, which in and of itself makes subjective reality impossible and makes subjective reality near as they can tell the um, ultimate truth. Because you can only really know what you know, because there's too many ways to view the world. And on top of that, 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 that would be to say that there really isn't one correct way to view the world except for your own, right? Because there, because of how many ways there are, there's an infinite number. And that actually is true. There literally is an infinite number of ways to view the world. I actually, mm -hmm. believe, from what I understand, and I, I'm not a, a, a tech individual, so um, this is something that we probably have to look up. But from what I understand, this is the, the main reason why AI hasn't progressed where people would like it to be right now. Because... When they build a robot to interpret the world, the robot literally has to do an infinite number of calculations to figure out what this building looks like and what to do. Whereas you or I filter out all of the stuff that we actually don't need to worry about. Mm -hmm. And our brain does it. But how do you teach AI to do that when there's an infinite number of ways of things to look at? Like it's, it's an impossible problem to solve at this point. And so like, okay, what's well, a problem? So what do you do? Nothing, nothing is real. Objective truth is not a thing. And so you mesh those kinds of things together and you, that creates a big problem because an entire society that's based on objective truth, therefore, is not real, which would be Western enlightenment, right? Like fundamentally, our, our entire society is based on objective truth, among other things. So that creates a problem. And then with this comes the problem of individual, like individualism, right? Because there's no one truth, right? I don't know if I can phrase this properly. Let me, let me rephrase it. Okay, so on top of this idea of subjective truth being the supreme truth and, ob and objective truth not being a thing, there's also a problem with values, right? Because if there is no overarching truth or narrative to things. There's no narrative because there's no objective truth. So there's nothing to really look at. Then hierarchies don't exist, right? Because when we're trying to, you know, uh, set ourselves up with a goal, if you and I have the same goal, let's say we both want to be really good at jujitsu. Jujitsu is a truth or a goal that we're trying to both hit. But if there's no such thing as that, we don't really have anything to aim at. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. And so that creates a problem, which means there's no hierarchies because there's nothing to aim at. And so you get a flattening of everything, right? Um, and that's where your equity, your quality of outcome comes from, right? That's what I see there is that, that same concept at play. And that's bad because how do you make everyone equal? Chop everyone down. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And it's also technically impossible because yeah. there's too many people with too many different issues. Mm -hmm. You know, there's, there's like too many problems. Well, it, it also it invites the possibility of freeloaders. Yeah. Which has always, always been uh, something to contend with for human beings. Yeah. Um, if you can freeload, it is efficient and it works. Yeah. Therefore, it is a potential uh, survival strategy. Mm -hmm. However, because you live in a group, 
and the cost to the group is so great, the group then needs to create the dynamics to not allow that to thrive. Meaning, if you don't pull your weight, you're out the tribe mm-hmm. because it hurts the tribe. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I mean, that's, that's as, as old as, as people. Um, to, to expect to just have things given to you for any reason um, is, is ridiculous and, and ineffective. Yes. Is the important thing. Um, so with that, you have this collective, this equaling of everybody, right? And which naturally would eliminate the individual from the group, right? So you have you have a group only and you have a group which then creates group think, which if you take it far enough would create an echo chamber of, of things that are somehow true, but they can't be objectively true, but it's the only thing that's true. So that's something that seems to me to be a... Um, not congruent, but that's kind of how the thought works, right? right? Like, And so we can set that aside for a second. Hierarchies are bad, which would make individuals bad because individuals are the ones that climb hierarchies, right? I individually try and be good at something against you who also tries to be good at it and whoever is better is at the top. And then we just do that a lot and a lot until people are really successful and most people are really bad at most things. And then they find something they're good at and then they hopefully they if they do really well, then they do. And if they don't, then they don't. Mm-hmm. And so that removes individualism, which is problematic when it comes to having your own personal meaning to life. Your whole entire meaning for life is fundamentally what is best. It's not even really what is best for the group. It's the group's meaning is your meaning, right? which pulls you away. And so like, I have a hard time grappling with that because I do think that people generally fundamentally need a meaning in life, not one that's given to them, but one that they find. Mm-hmm. And so you're not really choosing your own meaning there. It's being thrust upon you by a a collective. And so that's a problem. And then there's an irony that comes with all of this. And And the irony is this, is that you have a system where everything is based on class, race, gender, what have you, but there's groups and no individuals and you have to be assigned to that group. You can't be an individual outside of the group. You must be part of the group. But this was all developed by individuals who developed this because this sort of stuff didn't exist. So they stepped outside of their group because they didn't (laughs) like the group and they wanted something that more spoke to them, which is right. And then they created the system themselves. And that that system, if they were to put themselves into it now, they would be rejected from the system because they violate their own rules. I imagine they would argue that the system was thrust upon them by the oppressive class, but yeah, I agree with what you're saying. Sure, but yeah. th- at that point, they're just blame shifting. Mm-hmm. Oh, like, yeah. They made a there conscious lots, lots of that. whoever of the people that have done this over time, because there's been multiples um, over time, and it, it's you know come collectively together. But like they made a conscious choice to actually do something versus do nothing, mm-hmm. right? And so, which also isn't fitting in with the narrative, right? The victim narrative. Like they weren't, this stuff wasn't, the answers to these questions wasn't thrust upon them as they laid there, right? It was something that they got fed up and they're like, well, I want to fix the problem as I see fit. And as it turns out, there's some issues with how they see it fit, but they fixed the, they they attempted to fix the problem nonetheless, Mm -hmm. which is to take action and to actually have a purpose. Like that's their literal purpose. Yes. And it's driven 
individuals and groups of individuals for near on 100 years. I mean, this goes back as far as, if not before, Marx. Like, that's the whole purpose of all of this stuff is to find an answer to, a legit, to legitimate problems. And yet their answer is to remove all of the people who would actually find that, who would have found the original answers that they found. Like, I, I don't understand, like, I don't, that to me just erodes the entire argument. It's like, I'm going to spend all of my time trying to find an answer to a solution. And then my answer would be to say that me trying to find the solution is the problem. Right. <laughs> and it's like, that's, that's such a conundrum and a mindfuck to me. I don't understand how that's even, how someone can actually argue this sort of stuff and their head doesn't explode. <laughs> well, that's, it's literally because logic itself is being attacked and considered a white supremacist thing, which I'm still astounded that that is even something that would need to be argued. Um, you know, two plus two equaling four and, and the attacks on science and STEM and it, it well, I, I would assume it, st it, it stems from the, um, the rejection of uh, objective truth. Because exactly. log logic yeah. is kind of based in the right. idea of we're presuming objective things to be true. Um, and I mean, there's actually some, to give the, uh, to give the devil its due as it, as it were here, there actually is a problem with objective truth. Like, like you said, you know, we're, we, we're tribal by nature. So that's unconscious bias. That's what that is, right? Um, we will unconsciously be biased towards other people who aren't a part of our tribe, whatever that tribe may be, whether it's race, gender-based, whether it's just anything else, like mm -hmm. something more social, um, like proclivities towards sports teams. Like, you know, I went to the U, UW, so I don't like anyone who went to Wazoo as an example. Sure. I actually don't care anymore because I grew up, but I'm no longer a child. But, you know, d you have those rivalries for a reason, right? right. And so those things are inherent in us. So having an objective truth is technically speaking, not possible. Well, I, I, I as a human, no, but you can strive for that. I think, I think that's the whole point is I think you want to attempt to find the answers that transcend the limitations of you and me as humans. Yes. And that yes. would seem to me to be what objective truth would be. Yes. hundred percent. I think there, there, there needs to be the understanding of your subjective experience. And that is what is your reality that's your experience therefore you can't get any more real than that however if we can have a logical understanding that that is really just your experience and there are ways in which the natural world behave that we can deduce we can predict we can learn from that will benefit everyone mm -hmm. and can be replicated regardless of your subjective uh, subjective opinion on something or subjective experience, um, and regardless of your race or gender, um, a, a female Chinese scientist will come up with the same result as a black American scientist mm -hmm. because we're working on objective principles that transcend any of our experience. And then what we do with that information and how we interact with it, we have to acknowledge that we are looking through it or looking at it through our own subjective lens. But that does not invalidate the information that we found because 
we can continually test it from different perspectives, yes. different subjective realities, and if we still keep getting the same result, then we get things like penicillin and air travel and the iPhone. telephones in our pocket. Yeah. So the it to to argue that, I mean the the results of that, the proof of that, the proof of objective reality is literally all around us. Because we can manipulate our environment in such a way, mm-hmm. the only way that that would be possible is if objective truth was a real thing and we learn how to subjectively interact with it, then that's just, it's a duh. I mean, the, the, the proof is everywhere. Yes, there is an objective reality that we can interface with. On top of that, and in a social realm, not so much the quote-unquote like physical natural world, but in the social realm, then yes, an understanding of a subjective experience and a subjective reality is critical. And I think the more that we can acknowledge that someone else's subjective experience is different than ours, the more we can build those bridges, Mm -hmm. the more we can actually connect as human beings and say, uh, you know, this is my experience. What's your experience? Oh, that's different. Oh, I can learn stuff from that. How about you? What's your experience? And and share and grow as human beings. But that's at that social level. You, yeah. you don't throw out the natural world that we're all living in. That, that's just, that's ridiculous. And to attack things like math and logic, um, I, I think it's just an attempt to see to see how much power this movement can gain. How, how many things we can get the rest of society, the quote-unquote enemy, the, the oppressors, to buy into? And that's just, that's just a power check. Well, I think the whole thing is about power. 100%. That, 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 um, that seems to be the, the fundamental endgame is. It is by description. I mean, yeah. Marx himself basically broke the world into well, yeah. a power struggle. And... I, like if the end game is to let's say dismantle Western systems, let's say Western Enlightenment, it, I mean, naturally it would take a good amount of power to do that, and then you would have to be out. You'd have to build something in its place. I do find this interesting, though. It's you want to, not you, of course, but somebody wants to dismantle a system while also seemingly retaining all of the good things that came from the system. Right. They want to burn down the house. But keep but, the iPhone. Yeah. It, and it's like, I don't think you get both. Like, I don't understand how the burning down is the problem I have because it's like, okay, look, there are a lot of bad things that occur and the system is not perfect. I've never heard anyone say that Western civilization is per- the perfect civilization. The claim, if there is one, is that it's the best civilization so far which honestly is a pretty low bar. Yeah. Because civilizations for thousands of years have been fucking terrible. Dude, I, I bet if you took everyone in the, you know, the woke movement and just had them travel to three different spots in the world, you know, maybe uh, maybe Ecuador, maybe Nigeria and, and Siberia. Go to some hard places. Mm-hmm. And realize how good we've got it. Yes. Go to 
Yeah, go to the areas in the Democratic Republic of the Congo where warlords are running shit. Because that's what happens when you don't have police to handle things in a structured society. You get warlords and well, you gangs. Get, you get what happened in Kenosha, Wisconsin, this weekend or l last week when that 17-year-old mm -hmm. shot some people. Yeah. Now, regardless of whether he intentionally went there to kill people or he was defending himself, because from what I understand, there's differing opinions to, based on the information they've released. I find that irrelevant to the to what we're about to say here. It's that he went there to protect, near as I can tell, he went there to protect the structures that were there and to help the police. Mm -hmm. Because from what I understand, the police were told to stand down and they were reduced in number. So we have a situation where there's literally 17-year-old vigilantes going around thinking that they need to help because there's a dearth of individuals who were paid to help. And it's like, yeah, what else do you think is going to happen? Now, I'm not suggesting that, that I don't think that what he did, whether it was self-defense or not, is warranted. I don't want to see people shot. I don't want to see people killed. I don't think that's good at all. I have no problem with gun rights. Some people should have guns, but I don't think that we should run around shooting each other. That doesn't solve any problems. However, if we have a society where we're reducing the number of police in areas and crime goes up, you're going to have people who are going to take guns and they're going to go to those places to defend their country from people who would try and destroy it. Absolutely. Or even, I mean, it more at a, at a personal level, just to defend their family. Exactly. And like, it's like, you don't course, worry about country anymore. It's like, I now it's a survival question. Yeah, it's a survival, exactly. Of you, if the you drive somebody you. to to threatening their survival, mm -hmm. everything narrows. Yeah. They're not worried about the country anymore. I got to focus on me and my family. And I'll be damned if I let anybody violate that. And if everybody has that same stance and is coming at each other aggressively, then th there's no good outcome that can come from that. I think this kid in uh, in Wisconsin, you know, he was he was an overeager wannabe cop that thought he was doing the right thing, had decent intentions, but got way in over his head. Which is what everyone's doing right now is they have exactly. they think they have good intentions exactly. and they're getting it over their head, and that doesn't excuse it. No, not at all. I think it it illustrates. Um, it illustrates what it is to have an actually trained police force. Now, I don't think they're trained as well as they should be, but they are still trained mm -hmm. to handle situations. And when you're not trained, then we see what happens. People absolutely lose their shit and people die. Or we have, I mean, you were talking about warlords. I mean, the, um, I forget his name, but the guy who ran CHOP literally referred to himself as a warlord. Yeah. Like he actually said those words in an interview. I read them and I actually heard him do. I think he vocalized it. And he was a rapper. I forget his name offhand, but I, I do too. I recently heard it, but I, I forgot but, his name. Um, but yeah. He literally referred to himself as a war, the warlord of Chop and had people around him. They were literally armed with guns. And it's like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's yeah. what happens. Like this is the problem. And it, I just, I, you need a balance of them. You, you need to have a balance, and that's what the police force is for. Right? So because here's the thing, man. I, I think most of what we're saying is is pretty darn obvious. Uh, yeah, which is sad that we have to say it. Right. So hopefully, <laughs> and and I'm gonna I'm gonna put this out to the listeners. Um, if this resonates with you, we're asking you for to interact. We need to hear mm -hmm. reasonable voices 
en masse to help counteract some of this nonsense. Um, I, I think part of it, you know, again, the, the technology of communication and social media being so new, we don't know how to deal with it yet. Yeah. And these echo chambers and the results therein are such a novel situation that we haven't found the solution for it yet. Yeah. I think there's a high likelihood we'll look back on this uh, if we survive it in 20, 30 years and say, man, you remember when social media first got started? That was crazy. Mm -hmm. um, there is, and again, to go back to, you know, kind of an evolutionary lens, the words that someone says, just the words, they say account for about 7% of the communication how they're said, right? It's how they're said. It's the body language. It's being in the physical presence of a person. That's how our minds have evolved to absorb a communication with another human being. When you strip all that away to 280 characters and some emojis, mm -hmm. so much of that is lost that we lose the safeguards that keep us from saying the rude shit we wouldn't say in person lest we get our ass kicked. Yeah. And that reflex is important to keeping the communication. Like that evolved for a reason. If yeah. you say something that, you know, offends my honor or whatever, um, not that it's always been perfect, but there is that reflex to defend yourself. You can't just go spouting all this hate into the ether and, and think that's okay. Um, although technically you can now, but we are seeing the results. Yes, it, yes, it does yes. not make for a good societal communication. Uh, and when we haven't figured it out yet, um, then, you know, maybe long form podcasts like this will be a part of the answer or help lead to the answer to get the conversations going that eventually find the answer. Um, but ultimately, I really hope conversations like this will get the quote unquote reasonable folks to start speaking up. I think there is a large group of people, myself included up until recently, that just didn't want to mess with any of it because it's so ridiculous. Yeah. I don't agree with either side. There are grains of truth on both sides, but I'm not trying to get into a shouting match with anybody. I've got better things to do. And I think a lot of people feel the same way. Mm -hmm. So hopefully we can bring some of those people into the fold to, to have these reasonable conversations and and find a way to straighten some of this out. Yeah. And I would say too, like for the individuals listening, I personally want to hear from individuals who disagree. Absolutely. That's actually, and, yeah. and I would even extend this to people who are starting to realize that they're not reasonable, right? Not just reasonable people. I want to hear from people who are starting to realize that, Hey, maybe I'm not the most reasonable person, but I'm willing to try. I think that thought, is very That's, reasonable. It's, it's the try part. It's, it's but that like, thought is reasonable, yeah. and therefore that would define them as a reasonable person. <laughs> maybe, yeah, but maybe maybe there's someone who believes something so passionately, and they have a really hard time listening to a counterpoint. But they're like, maybe maybe I'll shut up and listen for a second, or maybe I'll give my point and explain why, and I'll listen to yours. I'll hate it and I'll be angry, but I'll listen to it and I'll try and try, try and take it in. I'm fine with that, because what I want to hear is other people's subjective takes on things. Because like you said, we can learn from that. I may not agree with them. They may just be completely wrong. Maybe the person has an idea and it's actually just a bad idea. Most of my ideas are also bad because most people's ideas are bad because it's hard to have good ideas. Right. And so it's like, you got to suspend that for a second and say, hey, I just want to solve the damn problem. Like, I don't really care how we do it. Right. In the sense that if it's not my idea, that's fine with me. 
what I want it to be is the idea that is going to get us all through it collectively. Um, I think uh, I'll close, maybe we should close, I'll have an example before we close. It seems like a good time to Mm -hmm. kind of throw this example in and, um, or this, this thought, this idea. So a lot of how I like to look at the world, um, I found this to be very beneficial is, uh, is I think of playing an iteration of games like over time, right? So you know, you actually can play games, you know, whether it's basketball or hockey or baseball or whatever, and then you can engage when you're kids in different games and you play with building blocks. And then like we're engaging in a dialogue right now or a dialectic, which is technically a game. We go back and forth and there's rules to that game. And depending on how we define them and we, maybe we have different rules. So it's good for us to sit down beforehand, which you and I actually did and go over the rules to the game. And there's ways to cheat in games and there's ways to be unpleasant in games and there's ways to play and, and all those kinds of things. And so you need individuals to play in those games and then you need to play as a team. Like that's a requirement in order to have a good game. Now the iteration of games is important because some people like to play a game where they just want to play to win. So that person is really good when you play one game or two games or five games, but it's really bad if you want to play a thousand games. Because after the fifth game, if you only play to win, you're more likely to bend all the rules, be selfish, be an asshole, and then no one wants to play with you anymore. Put this in a dating perspective, this would be, um, what's his face, uh, Ryan Gosling from that, uh, what's, the, what's the movie called with um, uh, Steve Carell too. He's, he's a player, he likes to sleep with women and never call them again. That's someone who's bad at that game in, in the long run. Right. He's very successful in the short term. He's good at the actual, whatever the game is, is to pick up a girl. But at the end, but the long run, which would be to settle down, maybe start a family, he's really bad with it until he meets Emma Stone and she somehow takes his heart away, right? And then there's people who are good at playing games over time. So they, maybe they share the ball a little bit more or they lift their team up. They get good enough so that people can rely on them to do well and win the game, but they don't take over the game themselves unless it's needed. They like to pass the ball around, let everyone else do it. Maybe they take a back seat. Um, You can actually see this example in uh, The Bad News Bears, the movie. Uh, Towards the end of all the movies that have been done, the head coach always has the best player catch all the balls, right? He plays like center field, but he fields the shortstop, the the ball at shortstop, and he throws it to first. And then he runs and tags the guy out at second. He runs to left field and catches the ball, and everyone else gets pissed off, and they don't want to play anymore. Because the coach wants, will do anything he can to win, and then no one else wants to play. Right. And then he concedes, and he's like, okay, well, let's play as a team, and then they win. Right? That's, that's an example of what I'm talking about. And it seems to me that those of us who are attempting to be reasonable want to just be the team and play. And maybe one of us is better at it than others. Maybe some of us are pretty bad at it, whatever. And then what we're actually up against is somebody who not only owns the ball, but doesn't want to play by the rules is just attempting to win as many times as they possibly can. And if and if they feel like it, they're just gonna take the ball and leave. Mm-hmm. And that's a problem. That's a huge problem. I would say um, to go against the exact opposite of that, I would like this podcast to be an invitation to people mm-hmm. who are willing to prioritize truth over a win, meaning bring your ideas, be willing to you know, defend them in a dialectic from your point of view and also be willing to absorb the information from the other side to compare those things together to see which makes sense versus uh, I'm just here to win a debate 
and try to dunk on you, yeah. that's counterproductive. I think the purpose of this podcast is to seek that truth. And if anybody is willing to engage in what is actually a safe space uh, in this podcast to speak your views, whatever they are, um, we are committed to never attacking a person, although we may attack the, we may attack the idea. Oh, we're going to attack the ideas. Exactly. That's the whole point, right? Um, and that's from a standpoint mm -hmm. of, of banging, on, banging on an idea to stress test it. It'll either pass or fail a stress test, and you're going to want to know either way. Um, I am absolutely willing to change my mind on any of my stances if I am given sufficient evidence. Yes. I am way more interested in truth than a win. Um, so if you are... If you're a person that this resonates with, if this type of conversation is something that you've been lacking and something that you've been hungry for, um, you know, please reach out. These these are the conversations that we want to have, and we want to have the hard conversations. If you disagree with what you're saying, but having the ability to have a reasonable conversation with people, where it's not just yelling and shouting and, and 30 second sound bites and, and all that mess that's saturating media right now, uh, then you know, reach out. We wanna hear from you, we wanna have those conversations. We wanna learn uh, from as many people as possible to try to get the genuine, uh, the genuine feelings of people and their opinions, their subjective realities mm -hmm. to therefore figure out what will work best for everyone as a whole. It's not going to work best for every single person in every single situation. Of course, that's just not possible. But as the whole, how do we all get together and make this as good as it can be? And I think ultimately, you know, the goal of America is to support its citizens in such a way that they have the opportunity to seek their own individual expressions and freedoms in, every, in whatever way they see fit. Um, there are going to be ways that we need to come together as a society in order to make that happen. We need to maintain the roads and the stoplights. We need to have fire departments. And yes, we need to have police. Um, and, and I would also argue we need to have health care. Mm -hmm. These are the basic things that give you the, uh, the best opportunity to live your best life. To me, that is what America is about. And there are absolutely places that we are falling short in that. I would like to address that, find ideas to help fix it. But we need to do it in a unified manner because if, we, if we're just blaming everybody else and, and giving them the, you know, the, the trial by water, if she floats, she's a witch, um, that is only going to separate everybody and ultimately has a genuine possibility of leading to a civil war, which doesn't help anything. So... Yeah, consider this. If this resonates with you, this is your invitation. Reach out, and uh, we'd like to talk. Sweet. I think we'll just call it there. Sound good? Very good. All right. Thank you for the time, Dan. Yep, yep. Thanks for listening, everybody. Bye. Bye.